right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up Podcast. Solly here. Got an awesome interview with you. Coming up here soon with Bob Herrig. He has written a book called Tiger and Phil. You know what? I kind of figured we were due for some Phil content that wasn't focused on the many, many occurrences of the last several months. A lot of us have a lot of great memories of Phil's career coinciding with Tiger's career. Uh, Bob's book is great. It's called Tiger and Phil. You can order it wherever you get your books. We have a great conversation about what his experiences have been like with both the players over the years the major championship experiences, the stories. the It's great. I, I really enjoyed talking with Bob. He's been around both these guys for such a long period of time. It's great to just, you know, for somebody that hasn't really been that close to so many things that happened in the early 2000s and their amateur careers, it was great to learn that through the book and talk about it with Bob. No Laying Up is proudly brought to you by our friends at Precision Pro Golf. Augusta, as we just witnessed, always a challenge for the players and caddies. We've interviewed legendary caddies like John Wood, like we did right before. Uh, the Masters Precision Pro Golf is giving you a chance to add your own caddy to the bag with the audio caddy experience. The Ace Smart Speaker gives you front, middle, and back GPS distances and personal layup spots with the click of a button. You can get your distances read out loud, or you can look at it on the LCD display. Powered by the Precision Pro Golf app, the Ace Smart Speaker can caddy for you wherever you play. It features a magnetic cart mount, up to 18 hours of music and golf, and a golf celebration button. Head to precisionprogolf.com and see all the tremendous offerings they have, including the Ace Smart Speaker. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. A quick heads up on this interview, we did record it before the Masters, so if you hear anything that might sound a little bit outdated, we knew nothing about Tiger playing in it or anything like that, so just keep that in mind as you listen to it. Here is Bob Herrick. So let's start here. Why this book and why now? Uh, well, it's been a two-year process, so I, the the idea kind of cropped up after Tiger won the Masters in 2019. And there was the thought of trying to capture that quickly and turn something around. And, you know, I kind of quickly realized I was going to run out of time. And so I, I just kind of kicked around some other ideas. And there's been a lot written about Tiger. And I thought, well, there's really not been a lot written about Phil. So why not combine them? And why not talk about their rivalry? Because we kind of like rivalries in sports you know, bird magic or Red Sox Yankees or, you know, whatever. And Tiger Phil, while obviously the records are quite different, Tiger is above everybody. They were really sort of at each other, friction, whatever you want to call it, for 15 years, you know. And as I sort of researched, you know, the idea of could, could this really work, it, it became more and more apparent that it was – it was an idea that had some, you know, that had some legs because their careers really did intersect a lot. We didn't have the duels that we would have liked. You know, there wasn't enough of that, frankly, but Phil won six majors and four of them, Tiger was right there, you know, and it, it annoyed Tiger to no end that not only he didn't win, but it was Phil, you know, and so there was, and then Tiger had the big lead on him, eight to zero in majors and Phil fought back and, and so, uh, and, and also I like to point out Phil was tiger before tiger. You know, he had an incredible amateur career, an incredible junior career cleaned up in Southern California, 
everybody knew who he was by the time he was 15. Uh, and, you know, we all sort of know that about Tiger, maybe, but not as much about Phil. Yeah, it's it kind of dawned on me as I was reading it, just how much as we're in this era that we're not going to see what we saw. And it's hard to appreciate it when you're in that time, especially for me as kind of a, a kid during this time. Like it was just second nature that, you know, Tiger wins seven out of 11 majors. And that was like, well, yeah, well, why didn't he win more? And then you get to 2005 and Tiger wins two of them and Phil wins one of them. Michael Campbell aside, like it's just like, how, how are we going to see two players emerge from an era and compete at that level ever again? I, I'd be hard pressed to to imagine that we would. And uh, you you've covered golf for a long period of time. Did you know while all of this was happening how special that this was? Probably didn't appreciate it like like I should have at the time. You're right. It sort of became what you expected. I mean, it was it's crazy to think back that there were many times when Tiger, you you saw this bet out there, Tiger or the field. You know, and I mean, people would take Tiger, you know, I mean, it's crazy talk, right? I mean, who would do that? But that's how good he was and how solid he was. And, you know, it was exciting, actually, though. I mean, just there was some people had the sense, well, you know, he wins all the time. But I go, but yeah, but it's he's not supposed to. And 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 sort of the drama of him sort of getting there almost always. Can he do it again? It was a story. It was a huge story always. And you're right. I mean, today, I mean, there's a lot of factors, I think. Would we have a rivalry with that? I mean, unless you talk about Brooks and DeChambeau, who haven't really gone head-to-head in golf, there aren't rivalries now. These guys are all friendly. You know, Tiger and Phil were not like, like these guys at all. I mean, now look, they all want to beat each other. And I'm sure they're stone cold on the course, but the chumminess afterward, you ne- that never would have happened with Tiger and Phil. They weren't waiting around for each other. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with how these guys handle it today. It's just different. You know, Tiger and Phil were, they scoffed at each other's, at, at each other's accomplishments a little bit, maybe not so much Phil towards Tiger. I just remember this one of time uh, in 2009, Phil won at Doral. He actually played a really good tournament in that he had food poisoning one of the nights of the tournament and tiger had had come back that season from the knee surgery and it was only his third or fourth event back and somebody asked tiger hey you know how impressive is it that phil you know was able to do this despite food poisoning and and tiger went right to what's the big deal you know i won the pga two years ago at southern hills it was 100 degrees you know it wasn't that hot like, you know, he just wasn't going to give it up for the guy. And it took a long time before that ever happened. We're going to jump around timeline-wise, you know, kind of last dance style, I imagine, through this conversation. But it, I get to, you know, the part where we're talking about the Ryder Cup later on in the book and talking about Phil and Tiger. You have a line in there that talks about them exchanging numbers. And I'm I'm stunned by this, maybe, to, see, to find out that did Phil and Tiger not have each other's phone number until 2016 or 2017? Is that right? You know, I'm not sure if that's exactly true. Okay. Um, I think Tiger probably changed his number a few times because there's references earlier when Tiger reached out, excuse me, Phil reached out to Tiger around the time of the scandal. I'm assuming he did that via text but he never really said how he did it. I don't know if he called him and left a message or what have you, 
but he reached out to him and, you know, sort of offer some support. You know, that was one of the rare times anything like that happened in those days. You know, it happened later in the time frame you're talking about, but not back then. What is, and I don't think that there is one thing you can point to as far as the genesis of the Tiger Woods beef. I'm not even, or the Tiger Phil beef, I should say. And I'm not even sure beef is the right word because if I'm reading it, how I read it in the book, it sounds like there's a little spat here that maybe a guy took a little too personally, but it came kind of tangentially. Like Dave Pels makes a bold statement, and then Steve Williams makes a bold statement, and it reflects on Phil and Tiger and maybe. They use that internally to drive their competitiveness, but where does it where does it stem from in your mind? Yeah, I don't know that there's a specific point in time. You're right. I don't think there was just this hatred or any kind of rancor between them. It's just that you know they they were they they were chasing the same things, and they they were there was a five year age difference. You know, Phil already had a family. Tiger was very much on his own. Uh, you know, they lived in different parts of the country. You know, we've heard this many times too, but Tiger didn't let anybody in his age group get close. You know, he was going to, you know, his friends back then, and I write about them, O'Meara, Mark O'Meara, uh, John Cook, those guys were a lot older than him. He didn't view them as threats. They showed him the ropes. They were friendly. You know, obviously he wanted to beat them when he played them, but he didn't see them as being long-term threats. His his rivals, Phil, Ernie to some extent, Ernie Els, VJ Singh, you know, he was going to keep them at arm's length. Certainly Sergio. Early on, you know, there, was, there wasn't the, the, the friction between Tiger and Sergio. That grew over time. He just, you know, he just really didn't have close friends out there. And, and I think that's where it stemmed from. And, and sometimes people took it the wrong way. They took it like, oh, God, he hates that guy. No, he just wants to beat him. He's not letting him get close. Phil was far more pragmatic, far more deferential, always talked about what, how great Tiger was for the game. Tiger's praise of Phil was a little bit harder to come by. He gave it when, you know, you'd have to coax it out of him. He gave it, but it was, it was far less than what you'd hear from the other side. Well, that's funny you, you say that because you, you say in the book, too, that Phil has, you know, for every veiled comment or kind of jab that Phil ever threw publicly at Tiger, it's, you know, coded with 35 other things he said positively about it. And it seemed like, it seemed like uh, you know, the equipment line, and, and for those that don't know that story, kind of take us to uh, why was the what Phil said about the equipment such a big deal? Was it a big deal, I guess? What was the line and why did that? Because uh, if I look back at that, it seems more or less that he's kind of complimenting Tiger more than he was throwing a jab at him. But it seemed like uh, it seemed like anything that those guys gave each other, they were going to use in some way as fuel against the other guy. Yeah, I mean, uh, that the story there was that was, I believe, in 2003. And this was at the time in the game when equipment was really evolving. And, you know, some of these guys were still using steel shafts and smaller headed drivers. And Tiger played a driver that was 43 and a half inches. You know, now we're talking 44, 45, 46 is the limit. It's going to be the limit. Pretty much everybody's playing 44 or 45 today. But back then, it was a, a lot of guys had moved up a little bit, were lengthening the shaft to hit it farther. Tiger resisted. He, he didn't go to the bigger headed uh, woods. He kind of stuck with what he had gotten there with, you know, for the last few years. And why would he, he was playing so great in the early two thousands. Why would he ever change? You know, he eventually did. He, you know, he obviously he went to the Nike ball, which meant a huge deal, 
But Phil basically said, hey, you know, you know, he, he's, uh, he's Tiger's playing with inferior equipment and he hates it that I'm blowing it by him now. Well, the inferior equipment was taken by many to mean, oh, those Nike clubs that he's using. And by the way, Tiger's getting millions of dollars to endorse those clubs. They're not any good. That's how they took it. Phil, I believe, and he has since said, and others back him up, he meant inferior equipment in terms of not utilizing the better technology that he had available. Like Tiger could have used a longer driver. He could have used a bigger headed driver and he didn't. And he was still beating them all. So to your point, yeah, it was sort of a compliment, but it wasn't really taken that way by a lot of people. It was viewed as a big diss on Nike. You know, they were sensitive. You know, there was some question about their equipment. You know, there were guys who went to it and went away from it. Uh, but some guys had success like Tiger and David Duvall and John Cook, who was a friend of Tiger's, was very put off by those comments. Like he actually sort of confronted Phil about it once. So, um, but yeah, like, is that a huge big deal in the overall scheme of things of, of the things that we talk about today? No, it, but it, 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 in Tiger's world, it became something he had to deal with, you know, and he had to talk about and he had to sort of address and he wasn't going to say a whole lot. He certainly wasn't really letting Phil off the hook. And that's where he would like kind of use it to his advantage. Let Phil squirm a little bit. Let him get all the questions about that, you know? And, and that's sort of how these things played out. How much of writing this book was from memory, note-taking, and firsthand experiences versus how much was research and things you learned for the first time? Yeah, it's a good question, too. I mean, I would guess it was about 50-50. I mean, I was there for all this stuff. So, like, you know, like, I did not get a sit-down interview with Tiger or Phil for this book. Um, that was never going to happen with Tiger, given that he was, at the time, he was working on his memoir, and he was, I was told contractually he can't do anything like that. And I always sort of planned to get him here and there and ask a few questions. Well, COVID really impacted that. We had no access, basically. And then, of course, the car crash last year, you know, he just wasn't out there. Phil was a little bit different in that he never said no, but we never got it to work. So a lot of the quotes in the book are from either interviews I had done with them over the years, from what they said at tournaments, from transcripts, what have you. But there's I probably talked to 100 and some people, 125 people, you know, in the last two years in reporting the book to get their views on various these various inc incidents or issues in time. So it was a little bit of both. I mean, it helped to have been there for a lot of it. I mean, certainly I didn't remember it all. You know, there was little things I found out. There was a lot of stories I did not know. You know, you wish you knew them at the time. They, they come out later. Uh, and so it was kind of fun to dive back into that and get to some of that. I mean, the chapter I did on Phil and winged foot, you know, that was, that was such an opportunity missed, you know, for Phil at, at, uh, at the two, 2006 U S open. I mean, Tiger was sort of out of the picture. His dad had died, missed the cut in the major for the first time as a pro that year. And, you know, Phil had the whole stage and he's leading on the 72nd hole. It would have been a third straight major, you know, only Tiger had done that. Uh, so there was a lot to, in, in my mind, there was a lot to dive into in that U.S. Open. I mean, you know, Monty almost got arrested afterward and, you know, just the, that was news. Cause I did not yeah. remember that Monty part. What happened there? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, Monty had, you know, and, and, and uh, in retrospect, he gets a little short shrift here. I mean, Monty had just as good of a chance to win that tournament as Phil, as it turned out, you know, he, 
he he messed up on the last hole too and and he's often sometimes put put aside and frankly he had an easier shot you know he had a seven iron to the green he was in play phil was not but afterward you know monty was just so upset uh so uh distraught and he's walking off you know the 18th and he's he's going to uh scoring he might have been out of scoring and there was a crowd and 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 you know people around and it was hectic chaotic and somebody put his hand on his shoulder and it was meant to try to help him through and it was a policeman but monty didn't know that and he reacted incredibly badly you know, he wheeled around and he might have said a few bad words and, you know, it, it got a little bit ugly. And I mean, if, if some USGA people hadn't intervened, it might have gotten bad. You know, the, it was like one of those things like, where you know, there's a certain point where, you know, OK, I, I don't do this anymore. And he, he he apparently took it a little bit too far. So and, and you know, it's just the whole that whole thing, you know, you know, Ogilvy doesn't think he's got any chance to win and. You know, Furick was in that. Padraig Harrington, they all had chances. I mean, it was a brutally hard course. Five over tied for the, or would have, five over was the winning score, would have tied if Phil makes bogey. So I just thought that tournament was so interesting because Phil actually didn't have it and was, was there with a chance to win, didn't get it done, would have been a third straight major. And then what happens? Tiger comes back and wins the next two. You know, I mean, it's just sort of typical of how they, how they rolled back then. No, I think that you're, you're the that chapter tells it really well in terms of you know it doesn't it didn't bother Phil that much. Obviously, it, you know it's it's very synonymous with an enormous collapse. Yet at the same time, it was a really hard hole, and the guy couldn't find the club face that day. And I right. uh, forget the name Ferry. I forget the guy's first name. His playing partner that day, very unheralded player. Yeah, Kenneth Ferry. Said, Kenneth, Kenneth Ferry said said something along the lines of I just I wouldn't have broken eighty from where he was off the tee, and I think that. That helps set the scene for what happened there, um, which I, I just, as I get more and more into covering golf, the historical nature of some of these things, it can get really dumbed down into, oh, what a choke by Phil. And it's like, if you dive back in, that's what I really enjoyed about this book is diving back into some of the sequence of, of all these events. And, you know, I, I maybe part of the reason it took me a while to get through the book is I would go back and go back and watch highlights after, uh, after reading about something. And something that stuck out was reading about the 2004 Masters um, with Phil and how there was so much build up to that. You mentioned it was eight to zero Tiger at one point in majors. And as I was doing, as you said, that I was doing the math and it finishes seven to six Tiger after that. I mean, it gets a lot more interesting, but he was criticized frequently for his playing style, for being aggressive. And he has a quote in there. He says, I'm going to play this way, whether it's Thursday, whether it's Sunday, I'm going to play this way at Augusta and I'm going to play this way at the U S open. If you go back and watch that back nine at the 2004 masters, he's down Ernie's doing stuff all over the place, all over that golf course, and he shoots five under on that back nine and makes that putt. I just thought that was very prescient to the point where it's like, this playing style is going to be my way. I'm not going to change it no matter what you guys say about it, and that's what ultimately leads to his first major. True. That's true, and he played great coming down the stretch, and he knew he had to be aggressive, and that, that fit into his mindset. But I think earlier in the tournament, he played a more conservative style. He certainly did no six at the masters, you know, he's hitting cuts off the tee and he's trying to get it in play. That was a lot of, I think a lot of bold talk from Phil there. There was a, a player's championship where he really like sort of, you know, opened up a vein and talked about that. He had, he had kind of let a, he had, he had been in contention at Bay Hill and, and wasn't able to get that one done. 
he hit a he hit a ball in the water on 16 and people thought he was being too aggressive and actually he didn't really have a, a great shot anywhere and he you know he he hit it in the water and ended up you know I, I believe Tiger went on to win that week and Phil was heavily criticized for being too bold and he said I'm not gonna change the way I played he actually got a letter from Arnie from Arnold Palmer you know basically telling him don't change you know, that's the way you play. You're going to win a bunch winning that way, you know, and so it sort of emboldened him. And that wasn't Tiger style, you know, for as great as Tiger was off the tee and all the great shots he hit, he played a pretty smart, methodical game. He, he wasn't a great driver of the ball, but he tried to get it in play. He tried, you know, he tried to, to, to make the others have to come after him and make the mistakes and it worked beautifully for him. You know, it's funny watching that putt fall in in 2004, watching him walk off the green, you know, kiss his kids and, and hug his wife and all that stuff. It made me it, – it was very weird 18 years later to to kind of see this heel turn, this recent heel turn from Phil in terms of, you know, here's a player who has made me feel very re- – I remember exactly where I was in 2004 as a 17-year-old watching that putt go in at the Masters, jumping off the couch and cheering – Yet now seeing kind of how, how things have developed with Phil over the last year or so, does that surprise you at all based on your experience with Phil and, you know, kind of following his career, kind of how these last few months and years have gone? It does surprise me, not, not from the standpoint of Phil's always sort of had this reputation as being, you know, he's the smartest guy and he's got all the answers and, and you know, he knows this and he knows that and he's been outspoken about things, but it never really was to the point where it hurt him that much, certainly not publicly. You know, he was viewed as an outgoing guy, signed autographs, smiled, did interviews, was on t- came off well on TV. I think where, where the whole thing surprises me is, is where did this, this quest for chasing, you know, this big money come from exactly? I mean, it couldn't have all been about I want to make change for the PGA tour. While a, a lot of that is true, Phil has long thought that there are things wrong at the tour. And he has long had issues with transparency and some of the things that they do. So he actually has some points in this whole thing. It's just that the way he went about it has hurt him greatly because it's overshadowed the things that he's right about. When he talked about the media rights, that was very, very, a poor path to go down because it's just not true. You know, it's not true. It, it, no sports league gives players their media rights. It's the whole essence behind how they pay the salaries or how in golf the purses are what they are. It's pretty basic. And as far as, you know, well, then using this new league as leverage. Well, like, were you that concerned about your, your peers coming up for the next 10 years that you wanted to make this better for them? Or was it about you? And remember, we're talking less than a year ago, the guy pulls off one of the most incredible feats. And frankly, it's probably been underplayed. Yeah. Oh, he yeah. won a major at 50. It had been 53 years since Julius Boros became the oldest major champion at 48. We'd had guys flirt with it, obviously, Tom Watts and Kenny Perry. But nobody had done it at that age. He beats Kepka, you know, who's going for his fifth major. Louis Oosthuizen is obviously still in the prime of his career uh, on, a, on a kind of a U.S. Open playing course that he had never been able to master. And now he does. 
you know, he wanted, I think the total score was six under. I mean, it was an accomplishment that should have carried him for years. Clearly his endorsement deals were going to go up. If he wanted to do TV, he could have done it and made a lot of money. He could have, he could have made chump change, easy money on the champions tour. The few, few times he went out there and look, he was exempt. He still is exempt on the PGA tour for years. Uh, you know, us open for five years and obviously the other majors he's in. So it's just odd that this became a, you know, a, a quest and that he became the leader in it and how much it's damaged his reputation now. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, I find it a shame because I, you know, I, I don't want to make a judgment about what's right or wrong. He just, he's a very popular player who we should be embracing now. And unfortunately, we're not. A quick break to check in with our friends at Original Penguin. There is a very, very, very good reason why you see us wearing so much of their stuff in all of our videos. I'm wearing a pair of sweatpants and a sweater right now that I've had for several years, actually. Their stuff is very durable. We absolutely love Original Penguin. They've been a great sponsor of ours. If you remember, they sponsored the 2019 version of Taurus Sauce at Pinehurst. Uh, I've I've got so much Original Penguin stuff that my wife actually made the comment that Hey, maybe you should like mix up your wardrobe a little bit. Like you don't have to shop, you know, not everything you wear has to be from the same brand. I would tend to disagree with her because there's so many offerings. They've got jeans, they got golf pants, hoodies, sweatpants, t-shirts, you name it. They got swimsuits, they got shoes, they got belts, they got absolutely everything you could possibly imagine. Go to originalpenguin.com, check out the new arrivals, check out some of the stuff that you would have seen, you know, us wearing in previous years. Uh, on our YouTube channel or wherever you have may have seen it. I promise you're going to enjoy it. They've been fantastic to work with, and I truly love wearing their stuff. OriginalPenguin.com. Let's get back to Bob Herrick. I'm, I guess, glad to hear that perspective from a seasoned journalist. who, For me, who's not been in this industry that long, it hasn't added up. And I was wondering if, you know, someone who's been around him for 20, 25 years or however many it's been, if you were like, oh, yeah, this was always going to – I'd have been surprised if that was your response. But, I, I, you know. There's certainly, you know, people that haven't thought highly of Phil. There's probably been some things behind the scenes, eye-rolling. You know, we really don't know the extent of all the gambling. Clearly, that's in the background of this. Um, you know, look. Uh, Alan, who's writing a book, Alan Shipnuck, who's writing a book about him and talked to him. You know, he's been around for a long time. I'm sure he's got a great book coming out on Phil. If it's me, I know what the journalism rules are. You know, I know what the rules are and I know what reality is. And the rules are, yeah, if you don't say it's off the record, I can use it. You know, well, all of us have had dozens, hundreds of conversations where those words are not spoken but then it becomes apparent that the guy is talking to you as a human being and not as the person on the other side of a tape recorder or a notebook. And there comes this point where you have to, in your own mind, say to yourself, there's no way he can be intending for that to be written. And given the language Phil used, that would have been, that would have been my clue. No way. He's, he's just riffing here. And so, okay, now do you ruin a good story? In my case, I say to him, Phil, we're on the record. What do you, you, you know, we're on the record here. What are you, what are you saying? Probably he recoils, he pulls back. Oh no, I don't mean for this to be on the record. Okay, now if I just let him off the hook, probably, but not really. I would say, no, no, look, you said that. We never agreed to anything here, but I have a sense that you don't mean for me to use that, but I need something from you on that. You said that. Now give me something I can use. 
and you you put him in the place of okay i'm i've j- he's just saved me somewhat but now i need to give him something on that so in the case we're talking about here the live golf and the saudi stuff all right what's your true feelings on it what do you think about it you know and then if he says it again then everybody knows i mean i i certainly don't think he was misquoted and i certainly don't think phil ever said it was all off the record but judging by what he said I don't think he meant for it to be used and he's been buried because of that, you know, and I just think it's a, like a real, it's a great journalism lesson. It's a great, you know, kids coming up thing. How do you handle that? I mean, we've all been there where somebody says things like in in all of my dealings with tiger, you know, I typically had an agreement with him. If I'm going to use something, I'm going to make it very clear. I'm asking him about it. Hey, look, I'm, I need that. I need to ask you something for a story I'm working on. And then boom. And then of course, you know, his tenor changes a little bit. He's a little more guarded. He's not quite as, as uh, you know, flamboyant. Maybe if we're just talking, you know, and, and I'm not necessarily thinking this is for, for publication. If I, if, if he says something that's of interest to me, say, Hey, look, I'd like to use that. Can I, how can I use that? And then, and then he might say, no, no, that's, I, I, that is completely between us. Well, if I want to burn them, am I ever going to talk to them again? You know, so this is, this is how these things work out. And, and there's a part of me, look, Phil's a big boy. He's been through all this. It's his bad. It's on him. He needed to make it clear. He's talking to a reporter that he knows. He's talking to an author writing a book about him. How do you say those things and not make it clear? That's where it seems like a culmination of so many of the things we've already talked about in terms of him just needing to be the smartest man in the room and, you know, needing to meddle in this book, despite, you know, Alan had made requests for him to sit for it and he, and he, and he didn't. And to, and I talked to Alan about this too, and he made a great point of like, look, if he just said off the record, I'd have pushed back on that. Like, no, this is our chance to talk about the, talk about the book, like talk to you for the book and had that conversation in a different way. It just feels like he just couldn't, couldn't help himself. And, with that much media training and that many years of doing it, he should have definitely, definitely known. Uh, it's yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, guess he could have taken me. that part of it off the record, and Alan was going to honor that. And obviously, yeah. I understand where he wouldn't have. Look, he's been trying to get the guy forever to talk to him about his book. You're not going to let him waste the entire conversation, and I can't use any of it. Certainly not. The whole thing is shocking. I mean, that Phil would get himself into that mess like that. And of course, that was said a long time ago before things had really heightened. You know, we didn't know as much about the live golf stuff back then as we do now. We didn't know how serious it was, how organized they were, frankly. You know, they've, uh, they, they really are. And so uh, it's just, no matter how you feel about what he said, though, I just think from the golf standpoint, it's crazy that we are not talking about him going to defend his major, you know, his, his, his major at the PJ championship. It, have you had any unpleasant run-ins either with Phil or Tiger over the years? Kind of what's your relationship been like individually with both, with both of them? I've had a couple of instances with both. Neither of them were particularly bad. The, the one time I had two times with Tiger where like he snapped at me pretty good, but it was all in the heat of battle and it was completely understood. And it was all fine later. One of them was, um, I'll never forget this in 2011. And I think I wrote about this in the book to some degree where he, 
this was when things were the Achilles issue at the Masters that year, the knee issue, and he comes back at the players and plays only nine holes. He didn't play again until the Bridgestone that year, which was the week before the PGA. And I remember asking him after one of the rounds, like, you know, he was just kind of shaky and not looking great. And it was something about – he was very annoyed, very upset with himself. And I asked him a question about expectations, like, why don't you just lower them? You know, like, why are you, why are you putting this on yourself? You haven't played, you know? And he was sort of like, well, I don't, I don't do that. And I'm like, well, well, why not? You know, why not? Anybody else? Well, I'm not anybody else. He was very abrupt, you know, and it was, it was, it was awkward, you know, and I, and I knew him pretty well at that time, but he just wasn't going to go there. And another time was the year in 2013 when he, at the, at the tournament in Abu Dhabi, when he got the two shot penalty for the bad drop. He thought he had an embedded lie. It was under this brush, but actually the, the ball was in sand. And so the rule is, yeah, you know, through the green, it's, it's a drop, but not, but not in a sandy area. And so, you know, he got hit with two shots and he missed the cut by one. And, you know, I've went go 9,000 miles to the Middle East and it's the second round and all of a sudden, boom, you know, not only is he not around for the weekend, but that's a huge story. And he barely talked afterward, you know, a couple of minutes. So I'd like, trailed him into the locker room or tried to and I just got a very abrupt not now Bob sorry not now and he just kept going and then you know he turned around and he said I'm sorry and that was it you know and but I mean that's the worst of it really I never had him question me about anything I wrote uh, never gave me any grief about any of that I had an issue with Phil though just last summer which was kind of funny you know remember the thing in Detroit oh yeah um, with the, the, the gambling story that came out just as he gets there. And, you know, it was an old story where he had actually won $500,000, him and a group of guys years ago, 20 years ago in, in something, uh, the bookie was in, in Detroit. And what happened was is they never got paid. Well, it's not exactly something you can go file a lawsuit over. And what happened was, is this, this stuff came up in a trial in 2007 with some mob figures. And so there was this whole taint of maybe he was involved with some people like that. It was, it's kind of ugly. And a guy in Detroit wrote about it in, in there was no, but there was no hook other than Phil was in town. And so, you know, Phil was enraged by this. Like, why would this be coming up now? So I, I was trying to decide how to handle this and kind of just came to the conclusion that if he talked about it or if any of his people talked about it, we would, we would do something. But if not, we would sort of let it go because it was, it really had no, it really had no point. It had no, there was no, you know, a hook to it. So I called his attorney and uh, Glenn Cohen, he's based in Jacksonville actually. And, and they were obviously very, very mad. And he said, look, let me get, let me, let me see if I can talk to you. I'll call you back. And a few hours later he did. And he was very careful with what he said, but he basically said, look, you know, we're not disputing that this happened. We're just wondering why is his name getting dragged through on this right now? He comes to this town, he's supporting this tournament, the local media attacks him. You know, why would he ever want to go back there? And, and so I wrote what he said. You know, I gave their side of it. I gave what was in the story and I wrote it. Well, and, and, and also Glenn said, Phil's not going to talk about this anymore. 
Well, Phil did talk about it. He ended up talking about it like after every round and he was, you know, he got more and more frustrated by it. And then he was very active on social media about it. And a couple of my stories got tagged into his feed. All of a sudden, I look one day to see what he's saying. I think it was on that Saturday. And, I've, and I see that he's blocked me on Twitter. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, now, how petty is that? Really? So I texted him. And I was pretty stern. I'm like, Phil, really? You're going to block me on Twitter over all this stuff? I go, you do realize that I wrote what your attorney said. Like, I basically gave your side of the story. I, I go, I, I don't understand why this has you so upset. So I get this long text back, you know, look, you know, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And in this case, you're part of the problem. And he kind of went on and on. And he was giving me a hard time about, you know, like, not about what I wrote exactly, though, which was what I couldn't understand. Like, what about what I said did you have a problem with? And so I wrote him back and I said, look, Phil, I go, I understand you're upset about all this. I go, I don't understand why you're upset with me. I said, I have written far worse things. I have made far bigger errors than this, even as they relate to you. I don't understand this. I said, can we talk about it? So he writes me back and he goes, look, he goes, you're right. He goes, I've made a lot of mistakes too. He goes, let's talk about this later. So I think I noticed the next day or two, I was no longer blocked. The next time I see him is at the open at Royal St. George's. And I actually, it was the Monday of the open week. And I actually went out there to try to find him. He was actually playing with Bryson. Bryson had his own issues in Detroit that week. You know, the, the caddy thing, he, the, him and the caddy split. So I'm thinking, Mutual. well, wow, this is, yeah, exactly. This is a two for one here. Maybe I can get these guys. And so sure enough, Bryson wanted to clear the air. I got a few minutes with him and I was up by the green. Like, I want to say it was like the 10th hole. I had been following him for like two holes. I was up by the green and I happened to be looking, I think I was writing something in my notebook and all of a sudden Phil comes right up to me. I hadn't seen him walking over and, you know, he's right in front of me, towering over me pretty good bit. You know, he's a tall guy. And he's just looking down at me and he goes, are we good? And I said, I said, are we good? I go, well, I said, actually, I came out here to let you let me have it if you wanted to. You know, like if you, if, if you still were upset with me, here, I'd rather you just go ahead and give it to me, you know, and let me, let me have it. He goes, no, no, no. And he basically kind of apologized. And, and then this is one of those things about on the record, off the record, right? We walked like the next hole. And he just kind of went on a rant about the whole thing. And he, he's explaining his side of it. He's explaining, you know, the, you know, when national media guys say that you perpetuate it, you make it go farther. And, you know, I was sitting there not thinking that we were talking on the record, but at, at one point I said to him, I go, look, I want to be able to write about this. What can I say? And then he gave me something that I use and it was far more toned down. He said, look, I don't want to make a big deal out of this anymore. I'm just explaining it to you. I made my point. I wanted to clear the air with you. And that, you know, after that, everything was fine. Now, look, I haven't really seen him much since then. Obviously we, I chatted with him in Memphis about the Ryder cup. He was fine. You know, I, you know, I saw him somewhere else at the uh, Northern trust. Everything was, everything was cool. So, but look, that's going to happen, you know, and, and the good guys let you get over it. 
you know, um, you'd like to think that if, if I'd have done something that I, the tiger didn't like, okay, you know, listen in, uh, in 2000, I didn't get it from him. Actually. I got it from his girlfriend in 2019, no, 2020, I guess it was over the holidays. I did a long, a long kind of timeline of the whole tiger scandal. Here we are, what, 10 years later, but it was all the good and all the bad. And um, come to find out, Erica was extremely mad about this. And she kind of gave me the cold shoulder for a couple of tournaments until I figured it out. And I finally tracked her down at Riviera and I had this conversation with her and it was obvious that she was really mad. And I had talked to Tiger before and I said, hey, look, it looks like I, I caused some problems at home. And he kind of chuckled and he goes, yeah. He goes, look, I get it. I understand what you were doing. He goes, we've been through this, you know, and I try to explain what we did. And he was like, yeah, I, I understand. He goes, you know, obviously we're not all that thrilled with it, but I get it. But she wasn't getting over it, you know. So it took a little while, but that we thankfully cleared that up because it was right before the pandemic. So look, stuff happens, you know, and we, we all make mistakes too. You know, like I, I'm, I'm fine with being called out if I, if I messed up. And that's where the, the struggle of your job in, and in, in my job too, to a lesser degree too, of, you know, knowing when you can and should be critical of somebody knowing that also might lead to losing access to that person weighing, what do you owe the readers and, and your listeners, you know, in that regard, what's, what's the proper answer. And it's a, it could be a tough answer, especially I find that players reactions to stuff that I've said or, or written or whatnot, almost like to your point on the Phil story, it, it almost never it coincides with some of the severity, right? Some of the more severe things I've said about people, they don't usually have a, an issue with, but a harmless joke, they may take totally the wrong way or something like that. It's a, it's a weird, weird uh, kind of nature of, uh, to what we do. But what is, you know, something that a part of the book I found super interesting, and I, I feel like I've I've read this in in other books about Tiger as well, but definitely some new nuggets that I hadn't picked up on was just the dramatic turn from Tiger uh, turning amateur to turning professional. How much his life changed in an extremely short period of time from the USAM to the Greater Milwaukee uh, Open. Explain this to me. He tried to play the pro-am at the tournament as an amateur with another professional. Does that sound right? He did. <laughs> he actually did. I think, I believe it was Duffy Waldorf, if I'm not that's, mistaken, was the correct. pro. And see, this was good. This was interesting for me too, because I wasn't there for all that stuff. And so I had to dig back into this. And it's fascinating to think, First of all, we all know Tiger, Tiger won the U.S. Amateur on a Sunday night in Portland, and he's in the Milwaukee Open the next week and turning pro and having these huge endorsement deals announced. Well, th there's no way that's happening in three days. That stuff had been going on for months, probably back to May. And, um, and so some of what he was doing that summer was a bit of a charade because he kept talking, you know, like he would get asked a question all the time and he kept putting it off. It's sometimes he talked about going back to school. He told people he'd be going back to school, but yet secretly they had lined him up for a bunch of PJ tour events. And if you were going to, if you were going to go back to school, why would you be entered in those? But people didn't know it. And so as part of that though, they were trying to keep the secret for as long as possible. 
And they weren't going to announce it until that Wednesday afternoon. And so Tiger actually played in, you know, he was in the tournament as a sponsor's invite, allegedly as an amateur. So he played in the pro-am as an amateur with another pro. Like they were trying to keep this ruse. And, um, but it actually had come out. Like on Tuesday, it sort of, you know, the world kind of knew he was turning pro that week. And he didn't actually have his official press conference, I don't think, until that later that day. But yeah, it was sort of kind of a weird deal how that all went down. And, 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 you know, he didn't have any money yet. You know, there's Tell a story. The entry fee. Yeah. yeah. Back then they had to pay a hundred dollars to enter. They don't do that anymore. And he didn't have the money. He had to, he had to borrow it from Butch Harmon. I mean, you know, Tiger had signed all these deals, but you know, he, he didn't have any cash in his pocket. So yeah, it's just kind of, you know, look, he's 20 years old. You know, he didn't, you know, he just still, he didn't know how to live life. I mean, he had been announced as, uh, you know, being from Orlando, Florida, and he hadn't even been there yet, you know? So uh, just a lot of crazy stuff that was going on around that time, which actually makes the way he started his career by winning like he did all the more impressive. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it's super interesting to me, somebody that was not around for the hype and the buildup to read things like, 5.3 rating for the u.s amateur final like for an amateur golf tournament outrating every pga tour event from the past how how many years i mean it's not even comparable that that blows my freaking mind and how how much the hype actually was before he even got there you know golf was not as big of a sport as it is now i mean he's the one that kind of you know brought this sport to the masses in a way that we had never seen yet at the same time before he was even pro he was drawing those kind of numbers. Right. I mean, well, how, the, yeah. The, the, the crazy intersection with Phil is that on that day that he won the third straight, Phil beat Greg Norman to win at Firestone. It was then called the World Series of Golf. It wasn't a world golf event. And that was his ninth tour win. And it moved him into the top 10 in the world for the first time. And like nobody paid any attention to it hardly because of the Tiger in the USAM, or at least it didn't get the attention that it should have. You know, a guy who's Phil's age at that time, 25, winning his ninth you know, title. You know, a guy gets to nine wins now. We're celebrating him. JT, Spieth, those guys. It's a pretty big deal when you get when you're in that realm. And, and then you beat Greg Norman, who at the time was, uh, you know, that was 96, the year he had blown the Masters. He was still around number one or two in the world. And it's sort of like a secondary golf story, you know, because of what Tiger's doing. It was pretty amazing. Hmm. And speaking of secondary golf stories, the, the one that I had never heard before and totally got me was tell us about what happened media wise when Tiger is playing in the what is now the John Deere Classic uh, in the this is 96, 96 fall of 96. Yeah. Right. Tell us. Tell us what happens there. What, what the first of all, what the John Deere was up against and uh, how that worked out for the media. Yeah, well, you know, the John Deere. uh seemingly has run into these issues a lot they were staged against the second president's cup and so and that was being played in virginia at the robert trent jones course and so you know most of the top guys were there at the time fred couples and you know guys like that were playing in the in the president's cup and and that was where a lot of the media was and tiger was tiger entered he had entered what five or six seven tournaments trying to the idea was to get his card before the end of the year. He was going to try to earn enough money to be within the top 125 so he didn't have to go to Q school. You know, in Milwaukee, he only won a couple thousand dollars. So, uh, you know, the thought was, is this is going to be really hard. 
what's it going to be like if Tiger goes to Q school? And then I think he went to the BC Open, was next, finished third, you know, rain delayed. They, they, they shortened it to 54. And I want to say that John Deere was either his third or fourth tournament. I think it was his third. And obviously Tiger gets into contention. He's the third round leader. And all those media guys at, at the President's Cup said, see ya. And they left. And they all went to, you know, Western Central Illinois to cover Tiger, who, for one of the rare times in his career, didn't finish it off after having a 54-hole lead. Ed Fiore, of all people, beat him. And, um, you know, it was still a great story because Tiger was in the mix that soon. Uh, and, and, you know, made, you know, he had a triple bogey early in the round. He made some mistakes. Uh, and obviously only a couple of weeks later, he, he won his first one. That's just, that blows my mind. Leaving the president's cup to yep. go, you know, one that he's competing opposite it. And, uh, yeah, it's funny. The only time he's ever been on the podcast, we just had him on for a short period of time. I asked him what is his biggest, uh, a mulligan he would want or the biggest regret he'd have. And he referenced that, that tournament off the bat, losing to the gripper uh, yeah. as he, as he called him in, in 96. But, uh, for some, again, for someone that had not experienced those, I really enjoyed that part of the book where you go through the sequence of events of what he went to, to get his card and how there was still this kind of underlying uncertainty as to how successful he was going to be as a pro compare his, I mean, because one of the things that sticks out too in reading it was he was not a slam dunk performer in professional events as an amateur. He did not perform anywhere near to the extent that Phil did uh, as an amateur. No, I mean, if you, if you didn't know what happened after Tiger's pro career began and you just looked at their amateur careers, you could easily make the argument that Phil would have been much better because Phil won a tour event as an amateur. You know, 1991, he's the last guy to do it, too. He won the Tucson Open. He was a junior in college. Um, he actually came back to school, finished fourth in the NCAAs that year, and then won it the next year. He had played in a few pro events. He had a very good um, first Masters in 1991. Um, whereas Tiger never really did all that great in pro events as an amateur. Like he missed a bunch of cuts, uh, in the majors he played, he was really not that impressive in terms of where he finished. His game was impressive, but his scoring wasn't finished way back at the 96 U S open, like 80, some guys made the cut. His best finish was 22nd at the 96 British open that Tom Lehman won. And at the time, a lot of people said, oh, you know, this is his impetus for turning pro. Now he's ready. Tiger has even said that. But of course, as I was saying earlier, I think the decision had already been made. But so you say that Tiger, Tiger, yes, look, the U.S. Amateur is incredible. But as we all know, winning the U.S. Amateur does not portend pro success. It's a completely different event. The guys he was beating, you know, Buddy Marucci was in his 40s at the time. Uh, obviously, Steve Scott was a, a, a nice, young, up and coming player. We beat, uh, you know, he beat in the last in, in the last one. In the first one, he he beat was it Trip Keeney, you know, who who never turned pro, or didn't have much of a pro. It was Hank who had the pro career, so none of that meant he was going to be a great pro, you know. And in his, and his his uh, attempts to to play well and pro to play in pro events weren't all that great. So yeah, like the fact that he came out, yes, it was a ton of hype. But there was nobody expecting he was going to win at the rate that he did so fast. Yeah. A <laughs> uh, couple things there. You, met, you mentioned this earlier about Phil winning the 96 NEC. One blew my mind. 10-year exemption at that time for that event. Is that right? 
Yep. And that <laughs> mattered a great deal to Phil. He talked about it. It seems ridiculous in retrospect. You know, a guy who was never going to have to worry about that, right? Yeah. But he was, what, three or four years into his career? And he, you know, yes, he had won nine times. But, you know, in his mind, having that 10-year exemption meant tons of security. You know, I mean, that was huge to him at the time. And yet, obviously, it never mattered. He was never going to have to worry about that. But at the time, it, it sure did. I'm going to ask you to spoil a few more Phil stories here in that uh, I, maybe this is this one seems like it's on me, but I don't think I'd ever really fully heard the details of what happened with Amy's uh, pregnancy of their, with their son, Evan, and how kind of scary some of those quotes were and how that may have uh, you know trickled down onto the golf course in 03. But it's kind of hard to uh, think about the golf after reading that. I'm wondering if you could tell us some of that story. Yeah, and that's one area I really wish I could have addressed with Phil all these years later. You know, now that his son is, I think, 18, Evan would be, no, 19, 19, 2022, that was 2003. Uh, you know, and the bottom line is, is, is both Evan and Amy nearly died during childbirth. Evan was deprived of ox oxygen for quite a long time. Amy, uh, I believe there was a good bit of internal bleeding. And, you know, there, there was panic in that, in that hospital. And there was a sense that they were going to lose them both. And in the aftermath of that, Phil was very, very shook, as obviously you would expect. It sort of, you know, it, it, it turned into kind of a lost year for him. He went and played the Masters the next month. He kind of went through the motions that year. And after a few months went by, though, like he kind of used the offseason and into 04 to really refocus and, and to try to sort of you know, all right, look, you know, I'm very, very lucky to be in the position I'm in. And he, and he did, he got with a trainer and he did some things and you know, he came right out in 04 and he won the Bob Hope Palm Springs tournament. And, and then obviously we know what happened at the masters, but yeah, that was a, that was a very, very difficult time. You know, apparently there was some pledges, you know, like he, he said he was never going to gamble again. Uh, you know, he told his mom that, you know, there was just all, he just was, you know, as you would understand, he was just incredibly, um, distraught and, uh, and, and it had an impact on him big time. And it, and it helped, I think it helped him get refocused on golf and, and, and realize I, I don't want to squander what I've got here. Yeah. The quotes from the, them overhearing the nurses talk about, you know, oh, what a shame she's, she's not going to see her, her, her three little ones grow up or things along that. I just, with, if you read that part and then go watch 2004 and watch him run off and, and hug and kiss Amy and the three kids, it, it hits just a little bit different, you know, through yep. that lens. I mean, his son was a year old at that yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. Uh, on a completely different note, I want you to tell us about the, uh, the, the jab that uh, Phil threw at Michael Clark II, which I got to admit is a name that I had not heard before this book. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one, too. That was one that I discovered in the reporting of this book that I had never heard. I can't recall off the top of my head. I'd have to look in the book myself to, to tell you which British Open it was at. But apparently this was back in the time of the of the grooves and all the stuff that was that being talked about guys had to really make sure that they were playing with conforming clubs and phil hit some shot that michael clark saw on tv that just reacted in a way that he was like no way <laughs> no way you know like phil like had like a 40 yard pitch shot that spun back a, a bunch and was really close to the hole and and so i think I think the next tournament that we're talking about was Hartford. 
Hartford must have been after the open then. And Phil has somebody, a rules person, come up to him and tell me, hey, you know, we we need to check your clubs to make sure they conform. And he's like, what? And, you know, like basically one thing leads to another and he finds out who it was who apparently, you know, you're allowed, any player is allowed to tell them, I want you to check so-and-so's clubs. <laughs> and this, uh, this, this obviously annoyed Phil to no end. And so he found out who it was and the clubs were conforming. And so he basically wrote, michael clark a note that he left in his locker something it was to the effect of dear michael um thanks for your concern about my clubs good luck at q school this year phil <laughs> you know and looking at the time you know they played it in november and it's july and there was no indication that he was going to lose his card i mean i don't think he was doing well but phil rubbed it in pretty good there and uh -huh. as it turns out he did have to go back to q school that is, that is, uh, that's just, that's fantastic. <laughs> now, along the same lines or somewhat similar, I want you to tell us the story of the, uh, the rules official tool, uh, Will Nicholson, and the story about the 2000, was it 2004 Masters with Ernie Els? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was, that was an amazing one to hear that too. I think you have to sort of understand the context a little bit. Phil's trying his tail off to, to win a major. And, you know, he's got that Tiger 8-0 thing hanging over his head, always being asked when he's going to win a major. And finally, you know, he's really playing well at that 04 Masters. And Ernie's playing well, too. And Ernie's in the group in front of him on Saturday. And Ernie hooked a tee shot left off the 11th fairway. And down the left is a bunch of trees. And his ball had come to rest in this kind of this rubbish where they had like left a bunch of debris, trees, branches, sticks, whatever. And Ernie felt he deserved relief from that. And two rules officials said no. They said they wouldn't give it to him. Well, Ernie asked for them to bring in the head guy, head rules and competitions, Will Nicholson, who used to be the USGA president. He was a longtime Augusta member. He held that job. Fred Ridley later had that job before he became chairman. And I, I, I believe Ernie referred to it as, he called it, it was something about greenskeeper's rubbish. I think he was the term he used. You know, we call, in South Africa, we call that greenskeeper's rubbish. And you're allowed a, a drop from that. And look, the Masters has always been notoriously pro player. They have always looked out for the player. And you can think of rulings over the years where this has been the case, going all the way back to the one, if you've ever read about the Arnie one at, this, at the 58 Masters, the first one where he had the embedded ball on 12. Tigers thing in 2013 with the drop and the scorecard. For the most part, they, they side with the player. Well, Will Nicholson sided with the player, and he gave Ernie the drop. And Ernie turned what probably was going to be a double into, in, into a bogey, you know, because he was going to have to take a penalty and still chip out. And, and this is all happening. And yeah, obviously Phil, hears, here's what happens. And it always rubbed him the wrong way. And it just bothered him that even though he won the tournament. And so Phil sees Will Nicholson at the PGA that year at Whistling Straits and, and Will's working as an, a rules official for the PGA. He's a rules guru. You know, so, and they're, I guess, in a practice round and, and Nicholson comes up to him in a cart 
and just, you know, like driving around or whatever and waves and, and Phil, I guess, can't help him, can't help himself. And he said, Hey, Will, if are you, you're looking for Ernie, I get, I get, he's back there, you know, like a total diss on the t- Ernie ruling at the masters. He didn't say what he was looking for, but he immediately went to Ernie and Will dropped an F-bomb on him, you know, like, Hey, Phil, you know, F yourself. And, and, and then he sped off and apparently he later came back and, and, and he apologized, but I just, this is like kind of the epitome of Phil, right? You know, like he's going to stick the needle into an Augusta guy of all people, you know, a guy who's in charge of the rules there and he had won the tournament, but you know, that's, that's, that's Phil. That's, that's, that's some of the stuff that has gone on. I love going back and hear the old quotes and stories like that. It's, it's fantastic. You know, and I never really connected the dots of how all, you know, these particular scenarios worked out for Phil in terms of how the 72nd hole uh, played out three different times for him where the protagonist in the story is out of position off the tee, meaning Payne Stewart in 99 punches out, gets up and down for par. Tom's, I forget where he drove it in 2001 at Atlanta Athletic, but lays up, gets up and down for par. And Phil, when he's out of position at Wingfoot, instead of punching out, trying to get up and down, get, uh, get away with par, goes for it and, and, and loses it there. And it just, after reading all these, it's like, man, Phil's a six-time major winner. That's a class of its own. But it's really hard to not you know, feel like, a, I don't know, sympathy is not the right word, but kind of like, you're kind of a, because you, you should be in the Tom Watson category. You should be an eight-time major winner, probably. You know, and I know he's had some close calls. The ball lips in in 2004. Who knows what happens if it doesn't? But, you know, Troon is another thing, too, that, you know, is just, he finished 11 shots clear third place and didn't didn't win. And it's just, that's a takeaway I had from reading it all. And I'm wondering, at the conclusion of, of, the, of writing this book, was there any big takeaways you had uh, that maybe were different from what you thought going into it? Yeah, I mean, certainly, Phil, you can make the case that he could have had 10 majors. Yeah. Some of it was of his own doing. You know, he, he was in contention at a U.S. Open that I believe the one that Corey Pavin won at Shinnecock. Uh, the, the, it's sort of bad luck the, in, in a way. The, the, I mean, not, not completely. You know, Phil had his chances. Pinehurst was difficult that final day. Guys were making mistakes. But Phil had chances down the stretch. He actually led with a few holes to go and then found himself behind, uh, you know, had a, had a, had a really good chance on 17 and, and didn't make it. And then he's behind. And then, you know, he has a guy get it up and down to, to, to beat him. Uh, and then it happens again at the PGA championship where, by the way, at the time, Phil's score was the lowest of any other PGA championship, but one guy beat him, you know, and, and then, he doesn't learn his lesson from that in 06 and with in, in one of the great wedge players of all time, take your medicine, punch it out. I, I winged foot, get it on the green. You have a chance to win with a 10, 15, 20 foot putt for par, uh, or you're going into a playoff. You know, those guys beat you that way. You didn't do that. The, the Troon example is a really good one. You know, that was, that was a tournament that, um, you know, and one guy he played great. You know, he nearly shot 62 the first round. Uh, you know, there's others. I mean, Marion that Justin Rose won. Uh, that was a great opportunity. He gave himself a pretty good chance at Beth Page in 09. And, you know, Lucas Glover, not a very heralded player, beat him. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, look, we can say this about a lot of guys. But, it, again, it points to their greatness. You know, how, how many times were you there, too? 
it's not just the six that you won, but there's five or six more that possibly he could have. Yeah. I, I certainly hope that there's a, a better conclusion to, to Phil's story career than the one we're kind of left with right now. And I, I have a feeling there will be, and there's a, a chance for, for redemption here. But um, the book is called Tiger and Phil. Where can people get it? And where's, what's the best pl- pl- uh, place to order it? Amazon's probably the best place to order it. It's pretty simple. You know, you just plug in uh, name Tiger or Phil or whatever. It'll come up. My name, it'll come up. That's the easiest way. It'll be in bookstores uh, on the publication date, or if not a little bit sooner, um, it should start trickling in. So um, I always encourage people to support their local bookstore if they can. So, but yeah, a lot of places it'll be available. Great. Well, Bob, thanks so much for taking the F1. Thanks for the advanced copy. And thanks so much for taking some time to share some stories. I promise we left a lot out. So there's plenty to read in there for people that are still (laughs) up in the air on whether or not to buy the book, please do. And uh, thanks for coming on the podcast and telling some stories. No problem, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. You bet. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. That's better than most. How about in? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect.